Please be aware that this episode contains discussion and serious allegations of domestic violence, along with the mention of a derogatory homophobic slur, and is therefore intended for mature audiences. Please take care while listening. The thing that drew me to move was I was already predisposed to freedom struggles for black and brown oppressed people around the country, being able to identify, you know, with those myself. And as a black man, you know, in America who had experienced certain things, you know, I aligned, you know, with the black power movement. I saw myself as a black radical in the tradition of Amiri Baraka and a lot of his teachings. You know, I also, you know, identified with the black arts movement, but then also with people of color freedom struggles around the globe. I had spent years living in Latin America. Um, I identified as a communist, which is also in line with the black radical tradition. And so that's where I was coming at things from, was from a liberation standpoint, and particularly a black and brown people's liberation standpoint. And so that's what drew me to MOVE. The voice you are hearing is a former member of MOVE. He and I have been speaking and recording interviews for more than a year, always under the condition of anonymity. They love confrontation, any sort of confrontation. And they are particularly adept at destroying lives, at badgering people, at attacking. They take to the internet, they take to the streets, they'll come and demonstrate in front of your home, they'll issue threats, and many times, you know, you people could say that they follow up on those threats. You could even add fury for one safety for, for those for See, all of those reasons. Seriously fearing for your safety. I, I don't put anything past them. I put nothing past them. I've seen and heard and witnessed too much to put anything past them. I mean, it, it, there's no upside to engaging in a battle or being identified as an enemy of MOVE. After the podcast launches, this man changes his mind and decides that we can reveal his identity. This man is Mario Hardy, formerly known as Mario Africa. He was a MOVE member for 10 years and had two children in the group. The reason that I have decided to come forward is because I feel like I have sat by for years and watched lives be destroyed, watched lives be lost in one form or another as a direct result of the manipulation control that was the way that the MOVE organization has maintained its power and individuals within its power. And when I speak of power, and I'm speaking internally, the, the power that the leadership of MOVE has over the members, supporters, children, and sympathizers. People need to know the truth about who they are and what they do and what their practices are. And two is the John Gilbride situation as well, where I do believe that his family, they deserve answers. Mario is going to take us into the inner circle of MOVE during the years that John Gilbride was not only a member and living in MOVE headquarters, but also the husband to MOVE leader, Alberta Africa, who was 20 years his senior. I am Beth McNamara, and you are listening to Murder at Ryan's Run. I met John Gilbride not long after coming to MOVE. He was the husband of Alberta Africa. John was not very involved in what the public sees him. I didn't see John too much because he worked double shifts. He worked very long hours at the airline until there were marital problems. As you heard in episode two, Into the Web, John gets involved with MOVE at age 17 and first meets Alberta when he would visit Muncie Prison, and she was there serving a seven-year sentence. Alberta is released from prison on May 13th, 1988, and they get together sometime after that. And then it became clear to the Gilbride family that John and Alberta were a couple after 
after the failed exit counseling session. Four months later, she and John get legally married in New York City, without John telling anyone. Mario doesn't come into the organization until a few years later, after meeting MOVE members when he's a graduate student at Temple University in Philadelphia. It's not long before Mario is living with MOVE as part of their communal family and interacting and witnessing the relationship between John and Alberta. She was probably more iron-fisted in her marriage and in their relationship than she even was with the organization as a whole. She didn't speak to him kindly. There were no questions. Everything was a demand. Everything was an order. Everything had consequences. And there were even times when she got fed up for one reason or another, could have had something to do with him, may not have had anything to do with him. She would resort to physical violence with John. Did you see that? Once, yes. What did you see? There was a, it was like a big salad bowl that she actually hit him on the head with it. She was uh, just to throw things at him, hit him, scratch him all around his neck, you know, viciously to the point where he had to cover it up in order to go to work. After a while, you could tell that he was being ordered around, that he made no decisions on his own. Everything was being dictated to him. A lot of that culminated in these meetings that MOVE has. One definition of meeting is this. An assembly of people, especially the members of a society or committee for discussion or entertainment. MOVE has been having meetings and openly talking about their meetings since Vincent Leapart started MOVE in 1972. But outsiders have never been privy to what a MOVE meeting actually is. MOVE has meetings whenever someone needs to be further controlled, when someone's not doing what they're supposed to do, when someone's not doing what they're expected to do or what they're ordered to do, or someone's having problems, or just as a matter of like maintenance. And the meetings consist of you know any size of a group, anywhere from two people to the entire organization sitting in a room and essentially berating the person for their lack of loyalty to them, their lack of loyalty to move, their lack of loyalty to John Africa and to John Africa's revolution. There would be screaming, there would be threats. John was at one point subjected to a number of really intense ongoing meetings like this where he was being berated by members of the organization for dozens of hours at a time. Start in the evening and would go almost until noon the following day. Pretty much always dark. Would either take place in one of the living rooms on one of the sides of the duplex move headquarters. There were some that took place at the house in in Jersey. The ones that I was personally at were at the King Sessing home in the small living room crammed full of people. Anywhere between four and 30 people. Some people standing in the hallway, some standing in the foyer and yelling from there. They would launch into verbal attacks and call him disloyal motherfuckers, that he's not a man, that he was, I, I don't use the word myself, but Move uses it all the time. They called him a faggot, and the only thing that kept him from being a faggot was that Bert saved him and gave him his manhood back. These were the things that people took turns going around the room screaming at the top of their lungs. It is in the MOVE guidelines that homosexuality is a perversion of natural law and punishable by death. John Gilbride's sexual preference was heterosexual, but that's irrelevant. MOVE's beliefs were created to control the minds and bodies of its members and to be used as internal and external weapons to maintain cultic control. Bert saved him and gave him his manhood back and provided him with a son so that he could feel like a man. And that never would have been given to him because the influence of his mother made him a homosexual. And then he resented his father because 
his father secretly knew that he was a homosexual and he hated him and disrespected him and never treated him like a man. And the only you know, bits and pieces of manhood that he was ever given was because of Alberta. And that was only because of Moose coordinator John Africa, who, you know, had chose him you know, to be the husband you know, of John Africa's wife after he was gone. It's explained by Alberta to the rest of MOVE that John Gilbride was predestined to be her husband and father of their son, John Zachary, by the leader of MOVE, Vincent Leapart. This is what you call a classic cult prophecy and myth-making. MOVE leaders and spokespeople have mastered this cult tactic, and if you check out their interviews, you will see that it continues to this day. MOVE's most recent narrative is all about leader Vincent Leapart being a Black man fighting for the rights of Black people. And the MOVE constructive narrative even goes as far as claiming that MOVE is a Black liberation group, like the Black Panthers and Black Lives Matter. An organization can present and be accepted as a Black liberation group and be a cult at the same time, which is what the podcast research was finding, until Mario Hardy threw us for a total loop with this Alberta story. He said that John Africa had told her that Alberta could never be married to a Black man because Black men are too domineering and too aggressive. I'm going to restate what Mario just said. John Africa, the leader of MOVE, who was born Vincent Leapart, a black man, before his death in 1985, instructs his mate, Alberta, a black woman, that her next MOVE husband could not be a black man because black men are too domineering and aggressive. This is how Alberta explained slash justified John being white. This is how she also explained John having to be submissive to her in every way. John would not have joined MOVE or gotten together with and then married Alberta if she had not love-bombed him first. The verbal and physical abuse started after they were married in 1992 and escalated after their son Zachary was born in 1996. They said, you don't love that. If you were to be around him, you would turn him into a faggot just like you, and then you would expect him either. She even had people telling him that you secretly resent Zach. There was a, a situation where Alberta felt like he wasn't holding Zach the right way when he was an infant and supporting his head the right way. And so she hit it repeatedly. Hit who? Hit John. And, and then they had a meeting on John saying that he was purposely trying to injure Zach because he was resentful of Zach and because Zach getting all of Alberta's attention and that he was secretly competing for Alberta's attention. Alberta is clearly a malignant narcissist, a trait that is definitely required for her job as leader of a criminal cult. If this was just Alberta versus John, John might have had a chance, but this was John versus the entire MOVE cult, and the females could be as threatening as the males, and age was not a factor, as even the teenage MOVE members were verbally and physically abusive towards John and other members. If you don't go along with it, then you're sitting right there next to him, and the next 12 hours is going to be on you. I did as I was instructed. I, I berated John. I did not, I purposely did not go as hard as other people did. I have corroborated Mario's account with other sources in MOVE, but more importantly, with contemporaneous dated notes typed up by John Gilbride himself and found on John's personal computer after his murder. One of these notes is from May 1996, the month his son Zachary was born. In his own words, John describes the meeting in detail, quotes people in the meeting, talks about being threatened with violence and about breaking down in tears. He was literally being terrorized. 
In another contemporaneous note from John's computer, dated six months after this, in November 1996, John is recounting another late-night meeting initiated by Alberta because she says John is not flushing the toilet, and so MOVE members arrive at 11 p.m. to hold a meeting on John. This is directly from John's notes. As usual, the room was pitch black. I was dead tired, and the various people, about five, took turns telling me how unsafe I was, how stupid I was, and many other mentally degrading things about me. One of the MOVE members even went so far as to say that my son wasn't walking because I don't like to do physical work. In other words, I was told, since my son was six months old and not walking or crawling, it was my fault because my laziness carried over into his blood. The only way I could correct this situation was for me to do more physical work around the move house. I guess it didn't matter that I was working 60 to 65 hours. In their eyes, move in Alberta. I was lazy. I believe she wanted me to see the organization as helping me, that then I would feel as though I need them. I couldn't live without them. Feeling this way would make me more dependent on MOVE and less independent, therefore creating a situation where MOVE would have a hold on me, my mind. He was a battered husband. And so it culminated in these meetings where really he was starting to speak up for himself. He was just saying, listen, I'm an adult. I'm a man. I want to be treated with respect. I'm a father. I feel like I'm humiliated in front of my children. I feel like I'm emasculated. According to John's notes, when he stands up for himself, he's threatened with physical violence and even death by MOVE members. And this is taking place in front of his baby son, Zachary. At the point where you start to not just question, but actually tell the truth about the leadership of MOVE, that's not permitted. John wrote this about one meeting. I love my son. I want to be a good father to my son and take care of him. Sue Africa interjects with, I can do that. You are not needed. Alberta responded with a thumbs down saying, wrong answer, John. Only I can hold them back from kicking your ass. I was shaking and crying and saying, I fucked up. I fucked up. It was 2 a.m. Alberta said, that's it. It's over. He's had enough. I went to bed and to sleep. I had to be up at 5.30 a.m. for work. We got a call hey, John is gone. And it was like, what do you mean John is gone? He's gone. John calls his parents and says, I've left Move. This is a phone number where you can reach me, but I can't tell you where I am. So that when Move calls, you can truthfully say, I don't know where John is. There was a meeting after John left to explain to the supporters what had happened. He's a traitor. He's turned traitor to Move. He's turned traitor to John Africa. He's turned traitor to Alberta. You know, he's turned traitor to his son, Zach. You know, right now he's trying to take Zach away. You know, just like the system, you know, killed our children on May 13th. This is absolutely no different. Everything that John Gilbride is doing is exactly what they did. John is actually working with the police. John was actually an agent and had been an agent all along, sent to infiltrate MOVE and bring MOVE down. John is in hiding for almost six weeks. When he resurfaces, he has an attorney. He was seeking divorce and that he wanted custody of Zach. Challenging MOVE in any way is considered a declaration of war. Challenging MOVE using the legal system is a declaration of nuclear war. Alberta's response was nuclear. They wanted us to watch him, watch his house, watch his movements, and just anything that could be used by Alberta in court or anything to be able to undermine him or to discredit him or anything like that. Was there any surveillance at his work? Yes. I did not participate in any of the work stuff. You know what? I, I take that back. There was one instance where Carlos, who, you know, any photo you ever see of him, he has some degree of a beard. Carlos shaved clean, and they dressed him in women's clothing. 
full-on makeup, dress, handbag, heels. They dressed him as a woman and sent him to the Philadelphia airport. I dropped him off. He was to walk around the airport in the U.S. Air Terminal and surveil him. The visuals of Carlos Perez Africa dressed as a woman are funny, but Alberta was sending a very strong message to John. And that message was, you can't go up against me. I am move. When John doesn't back down, Alberta turns up the heat by having her move followers send letters and make phone calls to U.S. Air, John's employer, saying that John was part of Move, which is a terrorist group. They also said that John was beating his wife and son. If Alberta could get John fired, then he couldn't pay his attorney, and then he would drop the case. John writes his own letters to U.S. Air supervisors, apologizing for the Move harassment, explaining that it's a divorce issue that he is handling, and he's sorry. Only Africa's, meaning original MOVE members and their children, which are the inner circle of MOVE, are privy to MOVE business. But leader Alberta is realizing she needs more soldiers and calls a full meeting of Africa's supporters and sympathizers inside of MOVE headquarters. Was this is MOVE versus the system. This is MOVE versus the police. This is MOVE versus the courts. This is MOVE versus the government. 19-year-old Kevin Price is a recent but very loyal, devoted MOVE supporter invited to Alberta's battle cry meeting. I can remember having the thought of, like, what does this have to do with supporting Mumia and the MOVE 9, which was my primary concern. The way that it was contextualized, so the custody battle really was part of those struggles, was that John had been a CIA informant from the start or, you know, special ops. And he had been raised basically with the prime mission of joining MOVE and ingratiating himself with Alberta and then using having a child with her to destroy the organization. Kevin was really young. All of the MOVE supporters were really young. If you're a little bit older, you might listen to Alberta's story about John being trained from birth to be a government agent to infiltrate and destroy the organization and go, that sounds like a Hollywood movie. And Alberta watched a lot of Hollywood movies, but she was also using seeds of truth from history, particularly the FBI COINTEL program, a government surveillance program under J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon that targeted civil rights groups in the 1960s, like the Black Panthers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. Alberta knew exactly how to manipulate and activate the sympathies and naivete of the young white move supporters like Kevin and Lori Allen. With John, they pulled all of us in. So I organized protest outside of the Gilbrides neighborhood. By Gilbrides, Lori means John's parents, Jack and Francis, who were not living in Philadelphia or New Jersey at this time. They were living three and a half hours south in another state. And we started by not protesting first, but by leafleting first. Lori and Kevin were living in Virginia when they were given this move activity. And together they recruited other Mumia supporters for this activity. Lori and I brought up people who barely even understood Mumia's case who thought they were just, like, doing something for racial justice and against an unjust criminal justice system. Like, we gave them the vague outline of what was happening with John, but I think we brought three people with us. Everyone on this move activity is white, and that was strategized by Alberta, because the Gilbrides are white and their house is in a quiet suburban neighborhood. Alberta wants everybody to blend in so that this could be a covert sneak attack. We just completely roped them in without really even getting their consent. 
And I can remember one of them in particular being wildly uncomfortable with the fact that we were putting liars with crazy allegations against people they didn't even know in mailboxes, remembering that we had somewhere around 700 flyers that were titled, like, a missive from the MOVE organization, and probably size 12 font and front and back. This is a missive from the MOVE organization. The people at Jack and Francis Gilbride are your neighbors, but did you know that they are associated with the MOVE organization, a revolutionary organization based in Philadelphia, PA? This association dates back to 1990. Their son, John, is married to a MOVE woman, the former wife of John Africa, and they have a son in the MOVE organization who is the grandson to these people in your neighborhood. Now, however, out of hate and racism, and because the grandmother, Francis Gilbride, has a peculiar relationship with her son, John, who is the father of this child, they have started an all-out war with the MOVE organization. They have influenced their son to divorce his wife and are now trying to influence him to let them take his three-year-old son away from the child's mother. This is wrong, and MOVE cannot sit by and tolerate to see this happen. The situation is bad enough that these people have influenced and coerced their son into divorcing his wife, destroying his family, and abandoning his young son. Now that they have influenced him to do all these things, they want to come back and compound the deed. They want to take the child away from his mother, which is why MOVE is in your neighborhood. You people in the neighborhood are not involved in this, and MOVE does not intend to involve you in it. But we do feel that you have the right to know the potential trouble these people are about to create by coming to Philadelphia, creating a problem with the MOVE organization. These people have everybody in this neighborhood fooled. They are not what they seem. You think they're upright, respectable, honest pillars of society. But what you really have in your miss is a woman who has ruined her own son's life, his masculinity, his security, and finally his marriage with her incestuous overtures towards her son. Ultimately, she is insanely jealous of his relationship with his wife. His father sat back oblivious to it all, compounding the problem by sadistically torturing his son, physically and mentally, twisting him into the psychotic child abuser and wife abuser he is now. Move members with the last name Africa drove three and a half hours in three vehicles from Philadelphia to meet up with Lori, Kevin, and the other white supporters they recruited to give them 700 copies of this Move missive against the Gilbrides and implicit instructions on how to distribute it in the Gilbrides suburban neighborhood. And this was early in the morning. Like we probably started at like, I don't know, 8 or 9 a.m. on a Saturday or a Sunday. And we started from the outskirts of the neighborhood. So we maybe started from the outer periphery of the neighborhood so that the strategy was that people wouldn't check their mailbox for the most part on average until a little later in the day, which would give us time to get through the whole neighborhood before someone who knew John's family called them on the phone and let them know what we were doing. So that was essentially what happened. We were able to put that, statement in every single mailbox in the neighborhood. By the time the Gilbrides got a call letting them know what was happening, we were at the house directly next door. I believe it was his sister came out of the house and and she was like very, very upset. And she was brave enough, which I don't think I would have been, to chase us down the street, like running. And we ran and, you know, like a lot of developments like that, there was a little kind of small tract of woods to separate streets or something like that. And we ran there and made our way back to the car. There's an adrenaline rush that comes from like running away from someone 
Out of breath, kind of scared, but also exhilarated, Kevin, Lori, and the others meet back up with Move at the McDonald's and are given high fives and high praise for successfully completing their Move activity. Reconvening with the people that you look up to and being congratulated and then all of that being quickly recontextualized to some massive victory and then you're like with 15 other people who have just participated in the same activity that is incredibly adrenaline heavy. There's a weird kind of bonding that comes. I mean, it's almost like you hear soldiers talk about the the experience and the loyalty they have towards one another when they're in combat situations make you much more loyal to the cause and feel way more bonded with the people that participated with you. This flyer activity was just the test, the precursor, for the next move attack on the Gilbride family two weeks later. It is Lori and Kevin again running this activity. So I organized a protest outside of the Gilbride's neighborhood. With banners and signs making the same allegations, but this time even more vitriolic and if the missive insinuated at things like, you know, child molestation, I think the signs said it overtly that the Gilbride parents were sexual abusers of John Gilbride. And we stood at the entrance to their neighborhood so that we were legally, you know, or at least in, in the thinking of Brianne Burt, who planned the whole thing, we would be legally within our right if we stayed on the sidewalk and, you know, didn't violate any noise ordinances. And generally the neighbors were upset. No one really stopped to talk to us or ask questions at a certain point. Somebody came in a car and started taking pictures, but we were all like so like self-assured and convinced that we were on the side of justice that we were all very fine with being photographed, you know, proud of what we were doing. Did the police ever show up? The police did show up, I, I believe, um, but I think they just asked us what we were doing, and I don't remember them actually giving us a hard time. I mean, they didn't seem happy that we were there at all. They seemed really confused and weirded out by the whole thing. But either way, we weren't told that we had to leave or anything like that. The police didn't talk to the MOVE protesters and tell them to leave. But they did have a conversation with the Gilbride family. And they actually told me I was at fault for these protesters being here. They actually posed for pictures. We oh, no. took pictures for our, like, evidence. Do you still have those pictures? Somewhere in here. Someplace right around here. here, yeah. We got all this. I've saved it all. So this second activity has MOVE members and MOVE white supporters. Pam Africa was there. Mike Africa Jr. was there. Mario was there. And then younger MOVE teenagers and their small children were brought along and made to hold posters that accused John's parents of being pedophiles. Everything they could do to, to poison the well in the neighborhood and put pressure on John's parents to, to pressure him to back down from the custody case. John doesn't drop the custody case, and in March 2000, it goes to court. The move people would get on the stand, and basically, it would follow the same form as the move meetings. You'll hear what went on inside the courtroom and what move was doing outside the courtroom. 
WeWork sent there to, to be there so that he felt intimidated. Do you remember who else was there with you? Most of the men who were members of most all of the supporters would have been there. Some of the women and some of the children. I mean, it was a large group. I'd never seen anything like what they did with John Kilbride. It's warm. What else did she have access to besides 50 or 60 people? Like, what else did she money. have access? Sorry? Money. She had access to money, and that's the key to this whole thing. All of this is about money. Next time on Murder at Ryan's Run. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. This includes slapping, shoving, and pushing. One in seven women and one in 25 men have been injured by an intimate partner. Intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crimes. Abuse is never the victim's fault. Help is available via the National Domestic Hotline, 1-800-799-SAFE, 1-800-799-SAFE. Or you can go on their website, thehotline.org. If you are finding our podcast informational, I would appreciate it if you would rate, review, and share. Also, if you would follow us on social media where you will find bonus content as well as investigative and podcast updates. Thanks for listening. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.